Well, good morning, St. Peter's. Uh, wonderful to be back here. Fantabulous to be with you face to face, as St. John would put it. Uh, and I see there's been some good changes since I've been gone over the last five years. There's a lot of things that are the same, and there's some things that have changed, and the changes are for the better. I see a little rug right here under the lectern, for example, <laughs> a, a baby rug to go with the big rug. I had a hand in bringing this big rug up here. Uh, I also went to the bathrooms earlier, and I think Chip and Joanna Gain must have passed through this place because they look really good. Um, I can't tell you how much I have missed subterranean worship, uh, which, by the way, is fantastic preparation for the dystopian future that comes before the eschaton. Uh, it has been far too long, far, far, far too long. In fact, it was not supposed to be this long. Uh, God and I are still talking about that. I'm still sulking a little bit. There was a trip planned, but then COVID happened. But today I've got a joy top up. Uh, even though Cindy and I do not miss the Vancouver winters one single bit, uh, it's wonderful to be back here, and I am reveling because I'm here with you, uh, with former colleagues like Alistair, and Lloyd, and Preston, and Rob, and so many others. Lots of dear friends here who I keep in touch with. Maybe some new friends we'll get to meet after the service today. Cindy's envious that she couldn't be here. Um, why is she not here? She is, she is an immigration application pending in the United States, and she wanted to avoid crossing any borders. The 49th parallel can be a dangerous place to cross. <laughs> so she has decided to remain in South Carolina with a daughter who has the chicken pox. But enough with the preliminaries, uh, seeing where we are in today's service, it's now our privilege to open Holy Scripture. We've just heard it read for us, uh, to turn to a chapter, to a cluster of verses, which are, I think, it's fair to say, among the most moving and profound in all of the canon. But before we ponder these roads, uh, let's pray. And I want you to hold your hands out while we pray. Veni Spiritus Sanctus. Come Holy Spirit, these words inspire. Fill them with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, nothing else matters. Amen. Uh, a few moments ago, we heard some of those words from Romans chapter 8, uh, some of the most timeless words in the New Testament, uh, words that often find their way into Hallmark cards, uh, memorized by kids in children's church, used at funerals, may even be tattooed to some of your bodies. Um, in what follows, I want to grapple a bit with, his, with what is arguably the centerpiece of that astounding little text. Uh, and this is a text and a passage that comes as a message of hope offered to a creation that is groaning. That's verse 21 and 22. It's a message of hope that comes into the groaning of our lives. Because our lives, while they're filled with happy moments and moments of success and victory, they're also filled with frustrations and disappointments and grief. We've got moments where paths part. Uh, which is what's happening in this community right now, moments of saying farewell, uh, moments when, which don't end relationship and friendship, but certainly change them. Uh, and that change can cause aching. Uh, it can leave us with longing. That's what happens when there's been love. And all of this, of course, is, is just indicative of the human condition as it might be generally appraised. The Bible is quite honest about that. St. Paul is quite candid in this regard. Uh, he himself said a lot of goodbyes. You can read about one of those in Acts chapter 13. You can read about another, a particularly moving one that reminds me of what's happening here and now today 
in Acts chapter 20 when Paul said goodbye to the elders and people at the church in Ephesus. So Paul knew about difficult goodbyes, and he also knew a lot about loss. Um, he was very blunt about life's difficulties. This is what he writes in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, I've been inflicted in every way, but not crushed. I've been perplexed, but not driven to despair. I've been persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in my body the death of Jesus so that the life of Christ may be manifest in our bodies. So Paul's very candid about the human condition and our human experience in this world as it presently is, and we should be too. For in the world as it presently exists, in our worlds as they presently exist, there's always groaning and tears. That's my experience. That's our experience. You all know this. No matter how hard we try to eliminate the pains and the difficulties and setbacks with technological breakthroughs, uh, educational advancements, even wise living, there's groaning. That's how it goes. Let me put it like this. There is no life that has not or will not be maimed and marred by trauma, by difficulties, by setbacks, by crushed dreams, by plans and expectations that did not pan out as we thought or hoped. Not a one of us is going to escape injustice and privation and fragmentation and separation. And that list could go on and on. We're all going to have our fair share, and some of us might have more than our fair share. And in the midst of all this physical and psychological and emotional agony, we can find ourselves in a spiritual crisis. I've been there. Um, or to make it a little bit more personal, what's happened over the last few months here at St. Peter's may have left you feeling discouraged and uncertain, worn out, anxious. It's okay to be open about this. It's okay to cry about that. Uh, that's what can happen. And when that happens, you might just feel a little bit driven away from God. Uh, you might feel that God has pushed you away or pushed this community away. Those feelings come in sometimes. You might feel that things are falling apart. And in the midst of those sorts of experiences, when we're in the thick of anguish, bewilderment, sorrow, that's part of life as it is right now, there's usually something that we want to know, a question that comes in the back of our minds. We want to know if anyone, in fact, is in control. You don't feel in control. And God doesn't seem to be in control either. There's a plane going down, and you're wondering if the pilot on board is as competent as Sully was. I wonder. I'm not so sure anymore. Maybe you think that way. That's the question that comes to all of our minds at one time or another. Sometimes that question comes many, many times to our minds. So whether it pertains to getting an education, visiting the doctor, going to the mechanic, or to unexpected and disquieting changes in our core community, in our church community, there's something that we all want to know, and it's this. Is there somebody running the show, and is that person competent? Can I trust them? If I can't, I'm going to be real anxious. If I can, I'll be able to relax. That's a huge question for us. It's a huge question for me. And you'd better believe that it is bound up with our peace, and our well-being, and our hope. And that question is supremely true when it comes to God. Is there a good and competent God watching over my life, watching over our lives, watching over this community? The answer to that question makes a huge difference. And that question draws us to a truth about ourselves. I'm going to say this slow and carefully. I'm going to say it twice. We will either live at the mercy of God or at the mercy of our circumstances. 
We will either live at the mercy of God or at the mercy of our circumstances. I want you to say those words out loud together. They should be on the screen right here. Oh, that font's much better than the one that I created. <laughs> I, see, I see there's still some slide editing going on at this church. <laughs> I want you to say, say those words together out loud. Look at there. I know I was preaching to the choir. You already know this. I want you to see that. That's incredibly important because that theological statement assaults one of the great illusions of our time. Um, the illusion that I'm in control, that I'm self-sufficient. The illusion that if I'm just smart enough or rich enough or strong and healthy enough or clever enough, I don't have to depend on anybody else. I got this. That's the illusion. But then one day something happens. A cell multiplies. Someone coughs on me. Somebody runs a stop sign. An angry person buys a gun. And all of a sudden, everything changes. And we realize that we're not in control. It becomes very clear, no, I am not in control. And so disappointments happen, and conflict happens, and illness happens, and painful changes happen, and death happens. That's how it is in this world. But guess what? Grace also happens. In fact, it's happening. And there's more to come. You got a sign up there that says, in this world we will all have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus says, and that is true. And that is the premier theme of Romans chapter 8. And you better believe it's worth the price of admission today. And this theme is wonderfully encapsulated in verse 28. Let me read that verse for you again using a very literal translation of the Greek. And we have perceived that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, the ones that he's calling according to his purpose. My objective today for the next few minutes is simply that those words would be our words, that they be pressed into our bones. Uh, pressed into you, filling your minds and imaginations and attitudes and aspirations in this season of change. So let's unpack that little concise but profound statement. And let's begin there at the front where Paul writes, in all things. The Greek there literally means in all circumstances. He's talking about all the stuff in our lives. And here's a really important thing to catch. All the same stuff happens to people who believe in God that happens to people who don't believe in God. We all experience the same things because we live in the same world. The difference is not that better stuff happens to people who believe. It doesn't always work that way. Let's do a little thought experiment. This is going to be interactive. Let's divide up all the stuff that happens into two categories, good stuff and bad stuff. See if we can figure this out together, thought experiment. You get an A+, plus, you win a scholarship, you get a promotion. That would be... Okay, let's see what he says to this one. You get struck with IBS, or you break a leg at Whistler Mountain. You're supposed to say good now. You have a blind date. Well, I could go either way. <laughs> you win a sweepstakes. Yeah, most people would say that's good. We qualify. You win a sweepstakes for a lifetime supply of pickled pig's feet. That's what they give away in South Carolina where I live. <laughs> Things just got bad. 
lot of people have this idea that if you become a Christian and believe in Jesus, the ratio of good stuff in your life is going to increase. Here's what it sounds like on the inside. If I believe in God, his job is to give me more good stuff. If I'm a Christian, more good stuff ought to come my way. Otherwise, what's the point of being a Christian? Or it can sound like this. If there's some particular thing, maybe it's a good thing that I really, really want, and I'm really faithful, I go to church, I read my Bible, I try to say my prayers, then God is much more likely to give me that good thing. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but if that's your balloon, and St. Paul's words here in Romans 8 are going to pop it. You see, in actuality, what Paul says is this. In all things, all the same stuff that happens to non-believers also happens to those who follow Jesus. Traffic jams, wrecked bikes, sick pets, broken fridges, relational conflict, and then, of course, there are the real big frustrations and losses, too. And I want you to listen up now because people get all twisted up when they get this wrong. You'll get twisted up. For those who follow Christ in this world, our hearts are also going to break. Grief is going to be no stranger, painful and perplexing. Perplexing changes are also going to happen. Death and tragedy are going to strike. We need to come to terms with that. We've got to come to terms with it so that we can begin to recognize at a cognitive and at an emotional level that God's goal is to help those who love him be less and less dependent on their circumstances for their happiness or their joy. Which is why a real good question to ask yourself is this. How much is my internal well-being, my joie de vivre, as my wife would put it, based on the external stuff that happens to me? Think about that. And not just this morning. Think about that, especially the next time you're discouraged, the next time you're dejected, the next time you're feeling supremely deflated, or the next time you're feeling slighted which, if I might add a personal example, is exactly how I felt on my journey up here when my seat got reassigned. And I was parked on the seat next to the lavatory on the plane, and a lot of people on that plane evidently had IBS. <laughs> Let me read you a quote from a guy called Henry Nowen. Some of you know Henry Nowen. He really pens the tail on this donkey. At issue is the question, to whom do I belong? To God or to the world, my circumstances. Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. Little criticism makes me angry. Little rejection makes me feel depressed. Little praise lifts my spirits. Little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or to press me down. All the time and energy I spend keeping some kind of balance, preventing myself from being tipped over and drowning, shows that my life is mostly a struggle for survival, and not a holy struggle, but an anxious struggle, resulting from the mistaken idea that it is the world that defines me. I feel like a little boat in a storm-tossed sea, but this is not God's will for my life, that I be defined by my circumstances. How about that? When God becomes the reality that is greater than our circumstances, we can find joy and contentment that is otherwise, and we all know this, otherwise very elusive. There is a joy that seeks us through pain, as one of my favorite old hymns puts it. Many of you are married or have been married. Some of you may one day get married, and you may have kids. And for some of your kids, things aren't going to go as expected. 
It's not going to unfold as you imagine and hope. That's what happened to a guy I heard speak a few years ago. He had a son who was born with Down syndrome. And this is what he said as he was reflecting on that experience. Very striking words. He says, whereas most parents ask, how could God have done this to us? We now say the opposite. Our boy has ennobled us so much. He has taught us so much about serving and love. He's brought us closer together as a family. In fact, this little guy is the most relentlessly upbeat person in our household. It should not be called Down syndrome. It should be called Up syndrome. <laughs> there is joy amidst pain. There's contentment apart from and even in spite of difficult circumstances. I haven't tasted that as fully as I want to, but I believe I can, and there's more. Let's move on to another phrase from verse 28. Paul says, God works. For we know that in all things, God works. Now here, it's crucial to notice that Paul does not say God will give you the circumstances you want. Paul says God will work in the circumstances that you have. And notice that the text also doesn't say that all things work. It says that God works, and that's crucial. You don't want to get that wrong. We all know that sometimes, often when we're in the midst of a struggle or grief, there's some well-intentioned person that comes along and they say something like this, things are going to work out. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. That's the hakuna matata mentality. Don't worry, be happy. Well, that won't do. Because in truth, no, not everything is okay. Which is precisely why Paul, earlier in Romans chapter 8, writes about creation being in the bondage to decay. That's bleak. Paul's a realist. Everything that we see and touch and hold is in bondage to decay. And that is why there are plumbers and mechanics and counselors, plastic surgeons. Things are becoming pendulous. Everything is falling apart. Again, think about it. Why do cars depreciate as soon as you drive them off the lot? Why do... Why does my coffee maker always have a limited warranty that expires one week before the machine implodes? Why do we post 15-year-old pictures of ourselves on dating websites? Things are falling apart. <laughs> and when we come face to face with this, it is painful. Back where I live now in America, it makes people want to sue somebody because we expect things to work out. Now at this point, I should remind you that when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he was lounging in the Shangri-La. Just kidding. That's not where he was. He was in prison. And that's probably not the dream that Paul had for his life. Yet Paul's not going to sue anybody. He's not expecting things to work out. What Paul is expecting is God to work in all things. God to work in all things. And that, of course, raises the question, what God? Which God? A few years ago, as some here will know, those who were here in 2017 when we left, Cindy and I moved over to Cambridge to live for a few years in England, and that's one of the drier parts of an otherwise waterlogged island. Uh, and so that meant practically that from time to time we would get a clear and starry night. Uh, and one evening after dinner in the hall, that's a picture actually of what I was looking at this evening, I ventured out to the center of the court. Uh, in violation of college rules, you're not supposed to walk on the grass unless you're a, a full-fledged Class E fellow. Uh, can't walk on the grass if your feet are undereducated. Uh, <laughs> but I did anyway. I was cheeky. That's, how, that's what they say in England. I was being cheeky. And I strolled out to the middle of that court, and I stopped, and I gazed up, and I looked on that 
clear night, the heavenly expanse was vast, multitudes of stars shimmering against the backdrop of space, and I was just transfixed. It was so beautiful. And then a few moments later, I heard someone else approaching. Um, it happened to be one of the college's astronomy students. Uh, they were also being cheeky. And she pointed out for me the Andromeda galaxy. You can see it with the naked eye, even though it's 2.5 million light years away, whatever that means. It's huge. But it's nothing compared to God. It'll fit in his hand. There are now thought to be 200 billion galaxies in the universe and 100 trillion stars. I want you to think about God and all those stars. He never misplaces one, like my kids often misplace my keys, frequently intentionally. <laughs> God knows where every star is. He knows their name. God never says, uh, hey, where's Gamatari? He never says that. He calls them by name, and he does it effortlessly. And they sit in the hollow of his hand. And here's the thing. This same God, and I want you to hear me now, this same God is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. That's Psalm 139. This is the same God who gave Abraham and Sarah a child, who delivered Daniel from the lions, who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, who raised Jesus from the dead. And that very same God also knit you together in your mother's womb. And he has been knitting your lives together in Christ in this place called St. Peter's these past 10 years. And it's made a beautiful community. And with this God who loves you more than anyone else ever can or will love you, the good news is not that everything's going to work out as you planned, but that rather through Jesus Christ, God is at work in all the things in your life, individually and also collectively for you as a community. And he will deliver you, and he will save you, and he is watching over you. Can I get an amen? Amen. And I just want to take a moment now of silence. I want to ask that you would listen to God's voice say that to you in your heart that I will deliver you and save you and watch over you individually and as a community. As we take stock of this truth in our hearts, another really good question to ask ourselves is this. Do you really believe that this God is at work here and in you or not? Do you really believe it? I do because I've seen it. I've reflected on my time in this church from 2013 to 27, and I saw it in so many ways. I have lists of the ways in my journals from those years. And I know a lot of you have seen it and experienced it too. Don't forget those experiences. St. Peter's fireside is a miracle of God's grace. Even so, I sometimes live functionally as if what Paul wrote in all things, Roger, you better be working really, really hard and avoiding any mistakes and keeping it all together without interruption. That's how sometimes I can live. But that's not what Paul wrote. Paul is telling us that God is at work all the time on our behalf. When you're just daydreaming, God's at work. When you're sleeping, which some of you may be doing right now, God's at work there too. And so we don't have to sweat it. It's not all on our shoulders. Our call is just to trust and follow and commit and love in anticip anticipation that God can turn our paltry fishes and loaves into a feast which surpasses what we can ask or imagine. Yet while we're assured that God is at work in all things, there's one lingering question left. 
For what is God working? And the answer to that comes in the final clause of verse 28 there. He's working for the good of those who love him. In all things, God works for good, for goodness and for beauty. You can, God is loyal to goodness and beauty. You can take that for granted. This is what God is working for in all the things of our lives. Now, that statement often gets misapprehended. People read it, and they think that God is working so that I can have ideal circumstances. So if I don't get the place in the program to which I applied, if I don't get the new job, the promotion, uh, things get a little bumpy at church, it must be because there's something better waiting for me, and God's going to get that all sorted out. That's how a lot of people tend to read this verse. But that's not the promise. We're not promised good circumstances, all the good circumstances we may want. It's vital to understand the thrust of the scripture on this point. Let me distill it like this. Good stuff can happen to me, a great degree from UBC, a lot of attention on Match.com, a job as a barista at Revolver Coffee. I mean, that's the best coffee on the planet, right? Being part of a community where it's always smooth sailing, that's circumstances. Or good stuff can happen in me. That's the character of Jesus being actualized in my life. It's about a growth in love and joy, and patience and peace, self-control, generosity, kindness, forgiveness, hope. The New Testament calls that the fruit of the Spirit. That's good stuff happening in us. And in fact, the best thing that can happen in us, verse 29, is being conformed to the image of Christ. He's the one who embodies all that fruit of the Spirit perfectly. And so in some, God does not promise us really good circumstances. What he promises is to make us into really good people. And that is infinitely more glorious, more noble, more significant, much more worthwhile. That's about becoming someone who doesn't just bob up and down according to the circumstances of my life. It's about becoming a community that can weather the ups and downs, the changes and chances of this fleeting moral, mortal life, as the prayer book puts it and can manage that with grace and poise and in hope. I want to be that kind of person. I want to be in that kind of community. Do you? I want to rejoice more over the good stuff happening in me than the good stuff happening to me, the circumstances. So in the end, what Paul says here in Romans 8 is it comes to this. God promises to use all the stuff in your life, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the ugly stuff, to produce good and beautiful things in you, in you as individuals and in you as a community, as a church, as a 21st century Vancouver expression of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church so that the character that Jesus Christ has right now, you yourself and all y'all collectively will have for eternity. And that promise is offered freely. It's not for strong people. It's not for smart people. It's not for people who recycle every week and compost vigilantly. It's not for good-looking people. It's not for moral people. It's for people who love God. Verse 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's very simple. Which is to say, those who trust him, those who lean on him, those who wait for him, those who surrender to him, those who build their lives on him. That's the God of the Bible, and that's what he's up to. And this is the God who gathered St. Peter's starting 10 years ago using this remarkable and faithful couple, Alistair and Julia Stern, and some other hitchhikers that came along like Roger Revel, <laughs> Preston Gordon, Lloyd Lee, and some of you who are in the room today. 
to gather up this church in this splendid endeavor. And that's what we're celebrating today. But we're also celebrating that there is more to come. A chapter is concluded, but the book is not over. Jesus will continue to gather to take you deeper and also wider, even if there are changes to come. And there will be changes. You can count on that. To live is to change, but to know God is to live. And so he's in your, in your midst. And whatever else may change, that will not change. He is in your midst. I want you to remember that in the days ahead. I want you to cherish it up in your heart just like Mary did. Oh, please do that. Please do that. I speak to you in the name of the, the big three I admire the most, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.